The Dauntless Gambit by Eric Flowers. Narrated by Chris Lynch. Episode 13. Well, so long. The message to return to the Matilda had reached Eliza's calm an hour earlier, right in the middle of a hot streak playing Zalaxian 10-card poker. Being able to adjust her cybernetic eye to track and count the normally imperceptible blemishes on the cards had almost nothing to do with it. She'd played the first hand legitimately, giving the dealer a chance to prove he was dealing fair. But noticing some fancy sleight of hand, she realized no one at the table was going to win much. It was a dirty table, and Eliza had been happy to even the odds, for herself at least. Her winnings had added up along with sidelong glances from other players and angry stares from the dealer. No one said anything, of course. They never did. Looking the way she did, what could they possibly threaten to do to her that was worse than what she'd obviously already endured? Eliza stepped off the last of the metal stairs that led up from the docking hatch and strode into the crew lounge. She frowned. No one else was here yet. Well, besides Sullivan, who was seated in his usual spot at the far end of the bolted-to-the-floor dining table. She supposed that he counted even if his enthusiasm rivaled that of the corpse they had stashed down in the cargo hold, figured that he would be the one to make it back before anyone else. Seeing that she had some time, she pulled off the vibrant red jacket, the one with the metal studs across the back, its left sleeve cut off like all the rest of her sleeved attire, and tossed it onto the worn sofa in the middle of the lounge as she crossed into the galley. It had felt like a red day. Her chromatically dyed hair had been colored to match the jacket and was currently pulled into a topknot, leaving the side of her face and head exposed. On the station, she'd wanted people to see the scar tissue that covered her left side, the calm disc in place of an ear, the black and white polymer arm and its smooth artificial movement. Prosthetic limbs could be made that were virtually indistinguishable from real ones, and the scar tissue could have been surgically smoothed over. But why bother? No one gave her much trouble this way, and if they did, she knew they really meant business. She walked behind the galley counter and rummaged through the rack of half-empty bottles of liquor, pulling them up one at a time and expecting each with an appraiser's eye. She scrunched up her lips in contemplation. Delacian whiskey? Or something they'd picked up on Mentorid called Mr. B's Rocket Fuel. The whiskey was brown, the rocket fuel neon green. Choices. She shrugged and grabbed both. Setting a glass tumbler on the counter, she added the ingredients for what would count as lunch. Or maybe dinner, hard to tell while in orbit. But that was the best part. Down on the surface of whatever planet you were circling, it was happy hour somewhere, and in orbit, you could choose which time zone you were beholden to. Into the tumbler went three parts rocket fuel, two parts whiskey, one part carbonated water, and a handful of ice. She gave it a quick stir with one of the cybernetic fingers, watching the brown and green mix into something entirely unappealing. She tasted it and sputtered. Hmm, like licking a battery terminal, she said. Makeup-covered eyes squinting in pain as she took another, larger sip. She set the tumbler down and took a pull straight from the bottle of rocket fuel. Mid-chug, she caught Sullivan watching her in disapproval. She returned his stare with a look of befuddlement. What? You don't expect me to drink that on an empty stomach, do you? She said, gesturing to the tumbler. Sullivan frowned, his gaunt features looking particularly skeletal today. She set the bottle down and then raised the glass to him. Care for anything yourself, Sally? I'm happy to tend bar for you. Sullivan sighed dismissively. Wisdom cautions against substances that rot the mind. Eliza shrugged and took a long drink, making an exaggerated ah sound as she finished. Yeah, 
Well, I figure I got one replacement kidney already. Might as well go for two. Sullivan shook his head, then turned his attention back to his data pad. Eliza hummed a jaunty tune as she walked around the galley counter and plopped down into one of the thickly padded chairs arranged in a semicircle next to the sofa, all the seating facing the enormous vid screen mounted against the bulkhead. From the corridor that led to the docking hatch, the clunk, clunk, clunk of boots reverberated from the metal stairs. Heavy ducked his head to fit through the doorway into the lounge, the man's gigantic frame barely squeezing through the average-sized opening. Eliza, Decker call us up just for drinks, Heavy said, clapping his hands and rubbing them together eagerly. Whatever they're serving in those station bars has got to be more water than anything else. Eliza held up her tumbler of brownish-green swill. We've got plenty of stronger stuff, but I think we'll need a whole lot more if it's going to have an effect on you. Heavy chuckled and sheepishly waved the comment away. Eliza had seen what Heavy could put down. What would have killed an average-sized person didn't even slur his speech. As efficient as her artificial kidney was, she imagined his had to be the size of her head. Each. Well, Hef, feel free to join me. The chaplain here turned me down, and you know what they say about drinking alone. Only drink when you're alone or with somebody. Heavy grinned and stomped toward the galley fridge where Eliza took another gulp of her concoction. Sullivan gave no indication that he heard her, but Eliza suspected he absolutely had. Reaching the fridge, Heavy yanked the door open and pulled out, with a single hand, a pair of canned Harukan ales. I think I could go for one or two while we wait, he said, delicately using an enormous finger to pull back the tab on each can. A fine choice. Now we outnumber the teetotaler, Eliza said, gesturing for Heavy to join her in front of the vid screen. She heard a sigh from the dining table, so Sullivan was paying attention. Heavy maneuvered his way around the galley and dropped onto the sofa, his enormous frame taking up a little more than two of the three cushioned spaces. The crew lounge was scattered with remnants of full-time ship living, dirty dishes, discarded foil wrappers from packaged meals, games both analog and digital, someone's studded red jacket, a couple of stray bolt pistols that didn't look entirely discharged, and more industrial-strength tape holding furniture together than Eliza last remembered. She vaguely recalled Decker grumbling that no one picks up their shit, but knowing the state of his quarters since she'd last peeked inside, it was hard to take that complaint too seriously. She picked up the remote for the vid screen and turned it on, browsing through the live feeds coming in from the local Clarita broadcasts. Gestural activity in the fringe escalated today as reports of, Eliza groaned, Ugh, news. Pass. On the last episode of Space Freighters, we saw reality vids. Boring. I'll kill you for what you did to my son. Blech, seen it. She flipped to another feed, the sound of a cheering crowd filling the lounge. And the Gargarian asteroids take the lead with that stunning six-point conversion. Heavy's head jerked forward. Oh, smash ball! He gestured to the vid screen, his smile filling the lounge with warmth. The asteroids. I played against them way back when. Eliza toasted to him, turning sideways in the chair and hanging her legs and booted feet over the side. She took another drink and called out over her shoulder. Hey, Sally, come over. Take a break. What are you doing anyway? Sullivan did not look up from his data pad. Studying. She snorted. Yeah? Hopefully combat jump tactics. Sullivan's eyes rolled up to stare across the top of the data pad at her, peeking beneath his thin, lowered eyebrows. I seem to recall a decidedly unshot-down torpedo necessitating those tactics. Eliza winced and found somewhere else to look. Oh, right. Well, you still did great. Better than I did. What a disaster that was. She took another drink and muttered into her glass. 
Not good for business. I'll say, Heavy bellowed, smacking his hand across his knee. And we still got you-know-who on ice down in the cargo bay. He pointed at the floor, shaking his head in remorse. Eliza smiled weakly in solidarity. That moment, her mechanical arm began to beep softly. The smile faded. She quickly placed her drink between her knees and opened a small panel on the underside of the cybernetic forearm, using her flesh-and-bone fingers to make some adjustments. Heavy leaned toward her, brow lowered in concern. Battery problem? You know, if you let me take a look... Eliza shook her head rapidly, red-painted lips pressed together. She gave the fingers on the detachable hand a quick test flex, then took the arm between her body and the chair, away from Heavy's view. If he knew how often these warnings happened, and how much it hurt, there would be no end to his concerned pestering. No, it's okay. Just some tweaks or whatever, she said, focusing her attention on the vid screen. She could see Heavy trying to pretend like he was joining her in watching the sport on the screen, the gigantic man conspicuously watching her out of the corner of his eye. He must have forgotten the extended field of view on her artificial one couldn't be hidden from that easily. Eliza pushed the feeling of dead arm anxiety away and forced a fresh smile. So, any bets on what brilliant fix-all plan the co-captains have gathered us together for? Heavy shrugged. Nope, but they've got us this far. I'm sure Deck has come up with something. Eliza angled her cybernetic ear toward the corridor. The sound of overly confident steps rang out against the metal stairs. Decker held up his hand, ready to fend off whatever protest was coming. This job's going to pay enough to fix up the ship and cover all the lost pay from Talius. Everyone will be squared up. We'll be flying right. Even have a little breathing room while we get back into rhythm, he said, hoping he was projecting the undiluted confidence he intended. Eliza's jaw dropped in exaggerated shock. Just in our time of need. She clasped her hands together in gratitude and excitedly brought them to her face. What are we looking at exactly? Manu spoke up, just as he and Decker had rehearsed. Better to spread the responsibility around between the two of them. The crew knew Manu would have already been the voice of tempered reason. Logistics. We pick up the client, don't ask any questions, give them some tactical support from a distance, and then head to the nearest chop shop and get Matilda fixed up. Eliza's voice rose. Tactical support, huh? As in the client can handle themselves and we're backup she said, taking another intentionally long, loud, exaggerated sip of her brown-green concoction. I don't suppose we know what this tactical support actually entails. Heavy joined in, his concern genuine. Yeah, and what's the point A and point B? We can't exactly set Matilda down on solid ground. Does, uh, whoever this is know we've got a busted wing? Decker fielded this obvious question, just as rehearsed. Time to break the news. Well... Part of the deal is that we get specifics once they're on board. But right now, our client needs to get out of Kestris. Decker held up his hand to forestall any questions. We'll pick them up on Starview Station. They already sent an arrival time, and it's tight. No destination yet. All part of the no questions asked. The heart of the Empire? We're not exactly the cleanest of operations, Decker, Sullivan said, his attention finally caught. Decker was ready. We're clean enough. We've got no Imperium warrants out, and Matilda is legally registered. The parts of her that matter, at least. Turns out, keeping our trouble-causing contained out here in the fringe has kept us out of the Empire's focus remarkably well. Heavy squinted one eye, looking up to the ceiling. Okay, Deck, give me a few days. I'll get in the EV suit, bandage up that nacelle enough to give us another week or two. It won't have power, of course, but we could endure atmosphere a few times before needing a dry dock. Decker cleared his throat. 
about that. We need to be in the jump today to make the pickup. Today? Eliza yelped, nearly spilling her drink. Even if this rig was at 100%, I'd still want to be packing extra firepower if we're heading to Central. But you want to jump to Kestris before we can even stabilize the damage? This must be some job, she cackled. Sullivan stood, approaching the group, eyes narrowed at Decker, making his sunken eye sockets even more sunken. You're very motivated to get this job. Too motivated. Motivated? Decker waved his arm at the ship. If motivation means wanting to keep this operation up and running, then yeah, I'm motivated. The alternative is what? Crawling into the crate with Jareth? Heavy leaned forward, face deep in contemplation. If we're that short on time, I can keep the whole nacelle powered down and isolated, but we'll be stuck to vacuum only until we can fix it right. Any atmosphere at all would just rip it apart until I can plate over it. Decker clapped his hands together and grinned. So we can do it. Perfect. Because I've already agreed to the job and taken the pay up front. Ha! Already accepted, Eliza said, downing the remainder of her drink all at once. Sullivan brought a hand up to his chin, squinting both eyes and walking within arm's reach of Decker. If we're already committed, I think we're entitled to know what we've been bought for. Decker met Sullivan's gaze. Ten thousand, each. And we'll also cover what each of you are going to lose on the Talia's job. Manu and I will be putting our cuts toward repairs, he added, hoping this would tip the attitudes in his favor. Hey, ten thousand each. That's not bad, Heavy said, looking to the others and nodding. Nice work, Deck. Fifty thousand cuts. Plus, you think you can fix that in a cell, Eliza said, tapping out some math on her metal fingers. Decker knew what was coming. That's at least eighty thousand total. You really getting that much? Yeah, something like that, Decker said. Technically true. The crew and Matilda is Manu's and my responsibility. We owe it to all of you to make sure we stay afloat. Eliza raised an eyebrow and shrugged. Sullivan said nothing, still staring at Decker. Heavy just looked to each person in the room, grinning and nodding his head in agreement. Decker braced for the obvious next question, but none came. Finally, Manu stepped forward, a look of grim confusion on his face. Don't any of you want to know who is hiring us for that kind of money, he said. The three crew members all paused and looked at each other, not a trace of concern on their faces. Uh, sure, yeah, Heavy said, slowly nodding. I mean... We sort of figure that you two handle all that. I keep us flying. Eliza keeps us fighting. Sullivan keeps us... Sullivan keeps us smiling and in his creator's good graces. Right, Chaplin? Eliza said, winking at the gaunt man. Sullivan kept his eyes on Decker, a grimace bending his thin, pallid lips. Please, continue. Right. Decker quickly replayed the defense he'd been preparing. It's an old acquaintance of mine from back in my Navy days. He paused. Someone I've worked with from way back, before we were all together. Everyone stared at Decker. And? Eliza said, raising an expectant eyebrow. Yes, Decker. And? Manu added unhelpfully. Decker glared at his business partner. It's Samantha Mori. Sullivan smiled knowingly. Heavy looked from Decker and Manu in confusion. Eliza's eyes went wide. Oh, that's what the hard sell approach was all about. She threw her head back and laughed. Very convincing. Someone from your Navy days, Heavy asked. Should we be concerned? I thought you didn't, Decker cut him off. Only concerned that she's got the money to bail us out. And I know her well enough to say that it's legit. Decker willed a casual smile. Everything will be fine. You're the captain, Eliza said, 
She caught Menu's eye. You too, half-captain. Menu snorted at the title. Heavy gave a nod of agreement. Yeah, Deck. If you're in, we're in. Decker rubbed his hands together, ignoring the strange feeling of anxiety at how easy this had been. Okay, well, then we're set. Heavy, take the credits. Do what you can to keep us flying. Sally, plot a course to Kestris. Cords are incoming to navigation. Eliza, check our supplies. Anything we need, grab from the station. I'll cover it. He turned and gave Manu a pat on the arm. Me and the half-captain here have a burial at sea to conduct. Decker's neck muscles tensed at the chilled air in the cargo hold as he and Manu lifted the freeze crate that held Jared's body. There was nothing wrong with the Matilda's environmental control system. The rest of the ship was comfortably heated, and the crew quarters each had independent climate controls. The cavernous cargo bay, however, was unheated. Being an enormous cube of empty air, there was no reason to maintain a comfortable temperature other than keeping it just above freezing. Given the task at hand, the morgue-like refrigeration seemed fitting. Let's be clear. You convinced everyone this was a good idea. Everything that happens as a result is on you, Manu said, making no attempt to hide his disapproval. Decker shook his head at the comment. As long as getting credit for securing the payday is on me as well, I can live with that. When we're all fixed up and back in business, who are you going to thank? Manu grunted, nodding at the crate. Not this guy, that's for sure. The jump to Kestris was charted, and this was their last matter of business to attend to. Jareth wouldn't be coming with them. They had no next-of-kin information for him. They weren't even sure Jareth was his real name. They certainly couldn't ask Violi, and turning him over to any authorities would just bring down unnecessary scrutiny they couldn't afford to risk. Before sealing the crate, Decker had asked Sullivan to conduct whatever it is believers of his religion did for the dead. He could give Jareth that much. Hopefully, he would have appreciated it. The two lowered the crate onto the conveyor belt of one of the Matilda's ejection ports a system normally used to eject inorganic matter into the void of space without needing to break the air seal of the cargo bay doors. Right now, the ejector was serving as the pallbearer at the most awkward of burials. Are you really doing this? Manu said, growling at the makeshift casket. Decker wiped the cold sweat from his forehead. Being jettisoned into space isn't the most dignified place to end up, but it's a better end than whatever would happen if we turned the body over to Fioli. Manu shook his head. I suppose... If I end up like this, you find some dirt to bury me in. I don't care how far you have to haul me. Decker gestured to the crate. You want to say something? Manu tilted his head, as if he hadn't heard correctly. Say something? Decker, I never even saw the guy. And I ain't opening the crate up to take a look now. Decker sighed. Yeah, good point. They both paused and stared at the crate. No, this was not a dignified way to go. Not one bit. He didn't seem that bad for a hired corporate criminal, Decker muttered. Manu folded his arms. I think that term might describe us as well, after all this. We did get this guy killed in the course of his kidnapping. Decker shook a finger in protest. No, IO Corp killed Jareth. We just had incidental damage during transport. Fioli should have taken out a life insurance plan on him first. Wouldn't surprise me if he did. A chuckle escaped Decker's mouth, one he quickly gulped back down. Right. He cleared his throat. Well, uh, Mr. Jareth, currently from, well, not currently, but recently, somewhere in the fringe, I don't know what you believed, but whatever that was, imagine that we're giving the customary last rites that align with your belief system. 
He paused, searching. Uh, if you believe that you might go somewhere bad after you die, I hope the earlier part of your life was not so focused on thievery and killing. Maybe you were making some final amends while we had you gagged. He paused again, this time longer. Sorry you were killed. We had hoped to bring you back alive. You know, we weren't hired to hurt you, but... Degger's statement weakly trailed off. They weren't hired to hurt him, true, but he knew Fioli would have enjoyed taking retribution against Jareth after they delivered him. They never should have taken a bounty job. Both men stared at the crate. Manu broke the silence. Some eulogy. Yeah. Another pause. Another stare. This doesn't feel right, Manu muttered. Decker scowled. Look, I've never given a eulogy before. Not the eulogy. I mean our mystery job, Samantha. Decker scoffed. Oh, yeah. He heaved his shoulders and exhaled heavily. I know. But what does? I can't think of a single right thing to do at this point. We'll get through this if we stick together and stay focused. Decker tapped a finger against the crate. We just need to put this little mishap behind us. Forget it ever happened. I don't think that's how Fioli and Iocorp will see things. I'll send Fioli an explanation and apology before we jump. He can sort it out with Iocorp if he really cares that much. I don't care, and I'm sick of being dragged into other people's conflicts, Decker snorted. From here forward, we stay out of things. We get paid, do our job, get out. Decker pressed the button on the ejector's control panel, and the conveyor belt unceremoniously pulled the crate into the sizable airlock chute, a pair of thick doors snapping shut behind it. The crate was visible through the small steel glass window set into one of the doors. The belt carried the crate down the ramp where the gravity generators tapered off, and a metal gate dropped into place behind it. A light on the control panel lit up, indicating it was safe to open the chute to the void of space beyond. Decker jabbed his finger against the eject button. The outer door opened, and Jareth's crate was ejected out into space, its trajectory a straight line between the Matilda and whatever celestial body's gravity would eventually pull the crate to its ultimate demise. Decker knew the feeling. Well, so long. Hey everyone, Eric here. I like episode 13 for two reasons. First was getting to do Eliza's point of view and have some of her thoughts and how she sees things and acts and kind of get to see a little bit more of what is really going on in her mind. And then the eulogy scene at the end with Decker and Manu where they have to send Jareth out the airlock. That was just one of those scenes where it was a lot of you know dark, macabre, gallows humor. And I think it turned out, you know, really grim and kind of funny and kind of illustrates just how miserable they are in their situation. Poor Jareth. Episodes 14 and 15 are going to be released together. That's going to be the big Act 1 finale. It's over an hour of audio. This was a TV show. This would be the big mid-season finale that happens just before the Christmas break where, you know, everything happens, all the setups start to get paid off and you see the story, you know, exit Act 1 and get into the promise of the premise of Act 2. I'm currently doing the rewrite of all the episode 22 manuscript. Episode 20 is going to the narrator and things are going along great. I'm just getting ready to put episodes 1 through 15 into ebook and paperback form and audiobook on Amazon and Audible. So if you want to purchase the real thing or send it to a friend who wants to get caught up all by reading it at once, it'll be up on Amazon and you know I hope you can go check it out there. Of course, it'll be available for free on the podcast and on the website, but if you want to 
you know, buy something. It helps pay the narrator, helps pay the editor and, you know, keeps the podcast going. So I'll see you uh, Monday for episodes 14 and 15. It's going to be great. This is the perfect time to send it to a friend, share it and let them know they'll have, you know, eight hours of audio to binge of this sci-fi espionage action drama known as the Dauntless Gambit. 